0: Hi everyone, we are episode eight of season five and I have Matt Ram back with me. Hi Matt. Good morning
1: Catherine, how are you?
0: I'm good thank you, how are you? Uh,
1: not too bad at all, The uh, you know as usual I, I talk about the weather a little bit I think in these openings <laughs> and uh, believe it or not the sun is shining. Um, Ooh, we've cleared nice. away all the damaged trees, gates, fences from the uh, our recent um, storm problems um, and uh, yeah. There's not not a breath of wind and bright sunshine, so I'm a happy man today, thank you.
0: Oh, very good. I'm hibernating. I don't do the cold, so I'm just uh, well aware. <laughs> and I was uh, I was on a webinar yesterday, and um, it was very interesting because uh, it started off with everyone, there was some people in London saying, oh, it's lovely and sunny here. And about 20 minutes later, it was like, oh, it's hailstorm and lightning. I thought, beautiful British weather. That's what we have, isn't it? Just a <laughs> <Yes>. quick change. <laughs> oh, no, <it's
1: laughs> um, amazing, isn't it? But there it is.
0: There we go. So today we're going to be talking about eating disorders and insurance. So this is the Practical Protection Podcast. So as we always do with these things, I'm going to sort of like go through a little bit of statistics and um, some information just to explain in a sense or highlight why we should be being aware of these conditions, especially as advisors or underwriters when we are thinking of the amount of people in the UK that might possibly go for insurance that have this as part of their medical history or something that they're actively living with right now. And then we'll get into all the the deep dive into things with with you, Matt, as we go along. Sounds good. So, um, so in terms of some statistics, I was looking at a few different places for this. So, I had a little look on, um, uh, sorry, like the Priory Group and also the Beat Charity website, and they're saying that there's estimated to be 1.25 between 1.25 and 3.4 million people in the UK that are affected by an eating disorder. So we're not talking just sort of a handful of people. We're talking a a significant amount of people. And um, and I would probably think without a shadow of a doubt that advisors at some stage in their career uh, and underwriters as well probably will come across a situation where they might, you know, speak about somebody with this kind of condition and um, it might not be something that's going in front of people's desks every day but it is it's quite realistic that it'll be something at some stage um in terms of um you know the eating disorders we are i think seeing, starting to see I, I could be a bit wrong that but i think what we're starting to see is a bit more of a men starting to have eating disorders or at least maybe more awareness of men that have eating disorders and that is currently about 25% of people that are diagnosed with an eating disorder are male and um, eating disorders themselves come in a, a range of different titles and names so there is the the one that most people be aware of or the the two which would be anorexia and bulimia you then also have um, binge eating disorder is classified as its own um, condition and then others which are called other specified feedings or eating disorders and that can include but but it doesn't always i'm not listing absolutely everyone but there's something called orthorexia it's also avoidant restrictive food intake pica and rumination disorder and when we are talking about um, eating disorders uh, it's about 10% of people that are diagnosed with one will be diagnosed with anorexia and about 40% um, bulimia so when we look at these as well in terms of when we're thinking well when would we expect these things I think I think sometimes in my mind I I do think of it as I think you see a lot of things on social media or in the news about quite a lot of young people um, who are having eating disorders. I think possibly is some kind of form of control um, as they are growing up. And the average age um, for an anorexia diagnosis is between the ages of 16 and 17. And for bulimia is the ages of 18 to 19. So I think a good place for us to start, Matt, would be to talk through some of these conditions that are classed as eating disorders, kind of like, what are they uh, and what's happening with the body as as people are living with them?
1: Okay, yeah, uh, thanks. Thanks, Catherine. The All of the uh, disorders which you mentioned there, they are defined medically by um, a list of expected behavioural, uh, psychological, physical symptoms. So it's almost like a tick list in a way, but like all tick lists, uh, not everything fits into a distinctive category. And certainly you've already uh, spoken or highlighted one of those areas, uh, OSFED, which is um, another, another wonderful acronym for uh, other specified eating disorders. And it is the most common eating disorder. In other words, despite the um, the, the, the list, um, a lot of things and a lot of medical conditions, of course, don't fit exactly into a predefined box or, or set of principles. So, osfed off, is other uh, specified eating disorders, and it's certainly most common. Now, having said that, the ones that are, uh, are the best known, if you like, and you've again you've already highlighted it, uh, are certainly uh, anorexia, anorexia nervosa whereby an individual tries to control their weight by not eating enough food, um, either exercising too much or, in fact, doing both. Now, if you think of anorexia, well, all eating disorders really, but the the, the two severe ones from an insurance perspective, the ones that insurers focus in on, uh, anorexia and bulimia, these are all about um, either uh, not eating enough or... Take, with bulimia, uh, losing control of uh, how much you eat, and then taking drastic action not to put on weight, but both of these, if you if you break them back down to their core, they are actually uh, obviously a, a form of mental illness. Let, let's be clear about that. But also, what you're doing to your body is um, effectively taking on uh, subjecting your body to malnutrition. Right. Okay, and I think it goes without saying that everybody listening will know um, that it's incredibly important to, to eat healthily um, and eat good, good quality food. Now, if you think if you don't eat properly um, and it impacts your weight, effectively you are malnourishing your body, and the biggest killer of um, of anorexia of, of people who suffer from anorexia nervosa is in fact heart related matters, closely followed by suicide, but maybe maybe of, uh, of interest and maybe a little bit of a surprise that in fact um, it, it is disease of the heart that actually kills most anorexics. And this really is because the heart, it's a muscle and it, it, it needs nutrients just like any other muscle and the heart and anorexia become smaller and weaker. And of course that will not surprisingly cause difficulty in circulating um, blood around the body and and at a healthy rate as well. So typical signs of somebody who is, uh, is, I suppose one would say a severe anorexic um, is something called bradycardia. Many of our listeners will probably know that means a slow pulse, um, and also low blood pressure as well. And these are all indicators that um, that the heart is struggling to do its job properly because, effectively, and simply put, it is it is malnourished.
0: That's really interesting. It's it's just picking up that yeah. Yeah, I was going to say it's really interesting in terms of the, the bradycardia side of things because some people when obviously they're exercise and they become in a sense very fit and healthy. well I was going to say become very fit and healthy but that's my kind of um take on it but maybe it's not they can become a bit bradycardic can't they because of the fact that they're they're so active that in some ways their heart rate becomes quite low yeah. in a sense I know because Alan Alan has obviously been a big fitness person and and we're complete opposites. So I seem to have a super fast heart, and you know his is the opposite way his yeah. is you know borderline Bradicardic, just because of the fact that I think because he is so fit, his heart's just like, oh, I'm just going to pump every now and then, you know, because you're doing all right on your own kind of thing. Um, so it's really interesting to know that that's actually, you know, in the sense for some people, it's maybe seen as as a result of quite a positive life. But well, I was going to say, Ooh. I know exercise can become a negative lifestyle as sure. well at times yeah. but in generally it can be sometimes associated with a positive lifestyle choice but then I know this isn't a lifestyle choice and I'm certainly not saying that for people that are living with these eating disorders but that it's also connected to what can be a very negative um, circumstance for the body.
1: Absolutely I mean uh, and as indeed um, low blood pressure of course mm. <laughs> it can be it, often seen in, in, in people as a positive Depending on how you define low, of course, in that circumstance. But yeah, yeah I mean I, 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 you're absolutely right. A, um, a, a slow pulse and lowish BP can be a positive thing, but it the bradycardia and low BP has to be taken into the context of what we are talking about, obviously, somebody who is suffering from anorexia. Not 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 the not the Alan Knowles of this world who are super fit mm. and like going marathons. <laughs> um, you can pay. You can uh, ask him to give me ten pounds later for saying that. One. <laughs> um, e- either either which way, um, I, I thought it was interesting for people to to to, um, uh, to hear that the, the heart slowly shutting down from malnutrition was the key reason for death in, in people with severe anorexia, um, and sadly, suicide um, is is the second most high. Um, so effectively, um, what what I also maybe say, and it fits in with, um, the heart slowly shutting down, um, as well, Uh, you will get something called multi-organ failure. So it's where all, all of the organs, um, slowly shut down because they, they are, they are not getting the right nutrients to function properly. And that's effectively, of course, um, the, the challenge for the doctors who, who treat people from from this condition. It's also interesting that the that the brain parts of the brain also undergo structural changes and uh, uh, and and have abnormal activity. Um, you've got the reduced heart rate, and it's possible you can put two and two together and say that the brain also, because the, the blood isn't being pushed around the body enough, the brain also gets deprived of oxygen, um, and. The nerves get damaged, and it can cause seizures, disordered thinking, and numbness or, or, or odd nerve sensations in the hands or feet. So these are all classic signs, of course, of, um, of, of malnutrition and the body slowly closing closing down. So we can we, we, we come up with the terminology, but basically that's sadly what kills people with the most severe form of eating disorder, which of course is um, which is anorexia. We talked. I talked about bulimia briefly, and again, that's losing control of how much you eat and um, taking drash, drastic action not to put on weight. So those are the people who, uh, a sign of this would be the people that that make themselves uh, vomit after eating, um, which is, is obviously not uh, nice at all. Yeah.
0: Would it also be people, because um, obviously I've, I've heard at times that sometimes people will take medication, yeah, laxatives. And, laxatives and things like that. Yeah. Would uh, that also be sort of potentially linked, with, I suppose, would that be linked with either of anorexia or bulimia?
1: Could be both, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Bulimia, I think, is possibly more common with that, but I think, it, you know, people who are looking to control their weight and that, that being the, the, the key, or a keyword, control, um, certainly would use laxatives. So I think it can probably apply to both. You also mentioned bed, um eating disorder um eating large portions of food it's defined as eating large proportions sorry portions of food until you feel uncomfortably full um sometimes I think you know I, I, I as as I do um just doing a little bit of research on on these topics and I think to myself goodness gracious how many times have I done that
0: yeah, I was going to say, because you no, know, it's, it's, I, it can make people question, couldn't it? Because It, I mean, can, it can do very much, yeah. Yeah, because, yeah. you know, if you go out for a meal somewhere, yeah. and you can end up having, you know, obviously, starting a starter in the main course or something. By the end of towards the end of the main course, you're thinking, oh, I'm really, I'm pushing it now, you know, kind of thing. And then you'll maybe be there for another 10 minutes or something, and then they'll come out with a dessert menu, and you think, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Um, yeah. But, you know, how many of us do that? But I, I wouldn't, obviously, a lot of us aren't then, I think with a lot of these things, it's always that fine balance of when does it become a binge eating disorder? You know, so yeah. for, so everybody can binge eat at certain points, but there's clearly a very defined and, and, and I'm sorry, I don't want to make it seem as if we're saying, well, well, everyone can do this a little bit and and to then make it seem as no, if it's a, I,
1: I think well, it's important to raise the point, though, Catherine. So you're absolutely right.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> I think it's the extreme here. You know, I think you you hit the nail on the head by saying occasionally... Or I thought that's what you said. <clears throat> um, yeah. That we you know occasionally we've done all this, but if if it becomes a very common part of your eating habit, then I think that's when um, the alarm bells should uh, should start to ring. Yeah.
0: Um, you also
1: talked about ARFID, uh, uh, We've mentioned um, which is which is avoiding or, or uh, taking a, a restrictive food um, intake. Yeah. Um, and here you've got somebody who avoids certain foods, or limits how much they eat, or do both. Um, now, with this one, what I haven't directly touched on with you, with your anorexia and your bulimia, is that the the, the people who suffer from these disorders often will have. It's not surprising, potentially, given what we've been talking about, mm. but they they have uh, beliefs about their weight or body shape. Um, and that that is a, another part reason of why they want they they want to lose weight. Um, and I suppose be- get into the controversial subject of um, of the the supermodels who are very very thin, uh, yeah. both male and female, I would say there, yeah. and um, maybe pressure that that youngsters uh, feel that they want to be like that and therefore have to be that thin, absolutely or slim. Um, I was gonna say, is that
0: obviously we're going into a bit of body dysmorphia there, which is probably no, more of a symptom rather than an, an. I don't know. I don't know if it is a condition in itself. I, when I was looking into things and, and that and from the things I know, it seemed to be almost like it. In some ways, it cannot be described as as it in its own kind of condition, but then also seems to be symptomatic. You know, a symptom of the others.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a symptom. I would say rather than um, you know you you would apply it to a, um, a definition. So, an anorexic or a bulimic may may ha- might, might feel that they are, they are dysmorphic or have a dysmorphia. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, interestingly, with um, ARFID, these, uh, and again, it goes back to your tick box um, type of diagnosis. But beliefs about the weight or body shape are not reasons why people develop ARFID. Okay. okay um quite why is 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 largely unknown but it, then it kind of comes into that that's that, that some difficult area of um of, of, of mental health but with these again um you've got negative feelings over the smell taste or texture of whatever you're eating a response to a past experience with food that was upsetting mm. or simply not feeling hungry or, or, or general lack of interest in eating and those are the three kind of areas that tend to lend themselves to to a, a diagnosis of arfid.
0: Yeah. Now, I
1: have to say yet again, and maybe maybe I'm um, over um, simplifying it, but um, there are certainly foods where I've had a bad experience over the years, mm. um, and and um, liquids as well, yeah. where I've, I've never touched them again. Um, Absolutely. You know, but again, I think it's it's the elements of um, how extreme. You take, and I think not eating um, a meat where you've where you've felt that you've had um, um, poisoning. food poisoning. Absolutely, um, is one thing,
0: but but. I suppose it's when it's adding to more and more things and and possibly where it starts to actually affect your health and Absolutely. affect your life. So yes. I mean immediately I'm thinking I um so when I was younger, I had um, a ridiculous amount of gallstones and almost anything and everything I ate would cause incredible pain. So I had my gallbladder out. Um, and and yeah, it was awful. Um <laughs> I was work. 15. Um, and um, so like now, I so I don't eat takeaway food. Like I'm, well, I was going to say, I, I say that I will sometimes get like a vegan pizza. But right. you know the thought of so something like fish and chips, or you know, which is obviously it seems bizarre because I live in a seaside town. So everyone's just like, how can you not eat fish and chips? Um, but are th- like um, potentially a Chinese or an Indian takeaway for me in in my head. I really struggle. I mean, I can absolutely eat those foods away from a takeaway situation. Um, But when it becomes like a takeaway and I'm I'm kind of convinced myself that they're using very strong um, oils and things like that, I'm really worried about Obviously, potentially the pain that I might feel. Um, but obviously that doesn't affect, I mean, obviously that might be considered by some to be something like that, but ultimately for me, it's just a case of what I know that I could feel very significant pain afterwards. Absolutely. Um so I avoid that. But obviously, it doesn't affect me not being able to eat them. I don't I don't feel sort of like it restricts my life in any way. Um, so as you say, I think it comes down to probably with quite a lot of these things is that there is there's a time when i suppose a bit in the same terms of anxiety thinking about that as well anxiety yeah. and depression you know we can all feel anxious we can all feel depressed at times but actually when it becomes anxiety or becomes depression it's when it's reached a stage where it isn't something that's that's manageable
1: 100% agree yeah you i think you summed it up very very well really it's um it, these things certainly um we shouldn't belittle these conditions whatsoever. No. In fact, I don't think we are. What no. we're assuming is that um, you highlighted the fact that um, a lot of people have felt um, or, or, or could identify with some of the things that, or some of these symptoms which I've outlined, but it's the extreme, it's taking it to the extreme.
0: Yeah.
1: That's um, is when it can lead into a, a problem.
0: Yeah, yes. I think, yeah. Um, so something... that's Sorry, really No, I was going to say, so something for me that's really key as well is that people... Don't assume that an eating disorder means um, a very low weight. And you know, obviously people that are living with bulimia, that they're not necessarily going to, to show us a significantly low BMI with anorexia. We would be seeing that. You know, So it can be a very low weight, but not always. Um, and when we do um, applications for people that have had an eating disorder, one of the things that we often come across um, in the questions from the underwriters is, um, obviously what is the current BMI and obviously you know you, the standard things that I always mention in in these podcasts which is you know what were the symptoms and when did they last experience symptoms and what was the specific diagnosis but there is usually that question as well of like what was the lowest weight of BMI that someone was and when was that in order to assess the application so so going back to saying before Matt so I'm assuming what by knowing the lowest BMI the lowest weight um, that the person has had and when it was that is in terms of data and, and the history that of, of um, people in this situation before that the underwriters have the, the information for, that's probably giving like that indication as to how much strain is being put on the, the heart and the other organs. Is that right?
1: Yes, that's right. It's, it's trying to build an overall picture, um, I think, there, with the, um, from an underwriting point, um, as in a, I and mean, I would have to say it is an indicator, and only an indicator, potentially, of how severe the disease was. Mm -hmm. Um, to ask about the lowest weight that uh, somebody um, has um, got to, if you want. Um, I I think from an underwriting perspective, I think we'll get on to it a little bit later on, but um, these, if if you want, all underwriters will want to do a very good job on any case that they look with somebody who's got a pre-existing medical condition. But I think unless you have a... Uh, a, a very well documented um specialist set of reports then it is very difficult to actually um come up with a, a definitive decision on one of these cases and i think sometimes uh, and it is the way of the world when when underwriters don't have all the information and i know that those uh, Three words. All the information can drive uh, our friends in broken, completely potty. Mm-hmm. Um, then what will happen is the underwriter will um, side on, the, um, on on a cautious approach and uh, increase the noting or not give terms at all. So they, these are quite difficult. What I'm trying to say is these are quite difficult and to a degree a little fairly subjective cases to underwrite. They're not yeah. easy. No, I
0: can well um, imagine it would be quite
1: hard because everybody happens. is different as well. Here, it's like mental health. Yeah. Mental health, is, as I'm sure you know, because I know you've been doing an awful lot of work yourself, and um, you know, and uh, with others, um, on on uh, looking at mental health and uh, so on and so forth, and, and, and trying to um, underwrite these far more accurately and getting the information, um, and and you know, all of these eating disorders are a form of mental. Health, mental illness, and you know, you can very, very broadly. um I can say that they're, they're not easy, and nor is mental health either. And they're that's a, that's a big challenge for underwriters. Yeah,
0: anyway. I, I was going to say that takes us into sort of like the next point. I was going to bring up quite, oh, right. okay. quite well. So obviously, as an advisor, it can be quite hard. Obviously, when we're asking questions in an insurance application, um, you know, especially as you say, like mental health-wise, it can be. It can feel very intrusive. Some of the questions depending upon how someone asks them, can feel quite blunt, which obviously there's very specific training that advisors should go through to ask some of them. But I think, um, I think what people can sometimes be surprised at, and advisors eventually, if they've experienced this, would be prepared for it. But obviously in terms of the people that we are speaking to and supporting, you know, they might say to us, Oh, well, you know, I've had bulimia and we could be discussing bulimia and you know it might be something that in the the grand scheme of things might be something that's quite mild it's something that that they know they have but they've they've managed it well it's a bit of a a, a, say managing it well you know it's been a bit of a coping mechanism maybe in times of um you know some difficulties or stress you know like a bit of workplace Mm -hmm. stress and things like that and and in terms of the application questions it can quickly go from oh you have an eating disorder to right okay so How many times have you tried to um, commit suicide or taken part in self-harm? And I think, you know, as as advisors and as the brokers, you know, we have to prepare people that those questions are coming up. But I don't think people automatically assume that you know or automatically know that it's going to jump to that um and um and I think sometimes when we ask these questions as well depending upon the application um as people who do these applications know we have to ask very early on a lot of the time have you had any kind of condition that's caused you to um at, at, you know of commit uh, try to commit suicide or see a psychiatrist be an inpatient in a hospital and we might answer that question and the answer could be no but then when we put in something then like an eating disorder we might actually end up being asked to ask those questions again, which can be quite difficult. And obviously I think that's that's partly to do with the underwriting systems and what, you know, what questions are available and where um, and what uh, triggers along. But um but obviously I think that is yeah absolutely something that brokers need to be very aware of. But I'm assuming, you know, I could say that lots of data showing that eating disorders are as we said before you know they are um, a mental health related condition and that there is is clearly data that's showing that um because I think I even looked at it somewhere on the the um in the charity and it said that Maybe, of all the yeah. Psy- yeah of all the psychiatric disorders eating disorders have the highest mortality rate and I, I don't know whether or not that is suicide you know so like, uh, people trying to commit suicide or if the what eating disorder itself yeah yeah is, is it the or is it organ failure is it that it's what they're doing is class the self-harm um and possibly even knowing if that's the right way to answer that question i'm not asking you to give us a definitive answer on that max i know it's hard but, you know someone says are you causing self-harm well how do you know do we as an advisor you know it's quite hard to go well do I, Do we put this in here do we put this elsewhere and um it can be very tricky
1: I, I again, um, we had a conversation yesterday. I think about some of my my big pet mm. areas of challenge for this for this um, industry that we have, and and you touched on another one with underwriting systems. Um, I genuinely believe, and it's very controversial, but I think sometimes uh, underwriting systems actually can lead to um, information being missed and important yeah. information being missed because they tend to be a bit tick box, you know, that, that dreaded, yeah. um, um, use of use of, uh, of, of, my terminology anyway, which basically means if, if, if it, you can't put a tick or a cross, then you, you're stuck. You can't put anything else in. Yeah. Now I, I you'll probably have to help me, um, with how many insurers actually offer, um, uh, as part of the electronic solution, um, a, a a a question which says, "Have you got anything else to tell us?" And that's free. And it is you know, the, and it's free format. You can put anything in there you want. I don't know if those exist that much these days. I we don't this.
0: have a, We don't really have any free. Well, I say you don't have a free text box system. Generally, in the application forms, there isn't a free text box. Or yeah. they'll maybe say something: right. like, "Is there anything you've not told us about?" At which point you'd maybe say yes, and then it will say, well, what is it? And then at that point, you would then put in this. But with an eating um, disorder, that would be captured elsewhere in sure. the application form, generally in the application be- form before that. Um, there are times, though, with some insurer systems where you may be put in a condition, and um, and either they, they know that they're going to need a lot more information, so they say, oh, can you tell us more about this um, so that we can and try can and, you know, underwrite yeah. it, yeah. Or yeah. sometimes it is a case of we don't recognize that condition because obviously we speak yeah. to a lot of people and sometimes the conditions aren't something that's automatically recognized by the system so because of, right we don't recognize that condition can you just write in this free text box what you're trying to tell us and um, so so we have that
1: okay as i say with them um, it, it sounds a little bit better than i thought then to be honest with you um you know you, you've got um, the, the ability to, to, to put something or add something that you think is important, or sometimes more importantly, that the client, your client in this context, um, feels is important that they want to get over as well. And again, um, you can always drop an email to the underwriters at, at, at an insurance company to say, with reference to policy number XYZ, please also note this following information. So I think there's always that is available, as far as I'm aware, by the way. Yeah. Uh, not, not being, a, not being a, um, an IFA myself, um, that can always be done. But it's, it's, it's one of those challenges, I think, you know, the, again, I know you, you and I have spoken about it. One of the challenges of the, um, of the industry wanting to automate and make everything streamlined and easy and quick, that doesn't lend itself necessarily to a, a fair outcome for people with pre-existing conditions maybe medical, medical conditions so I think that's, that's the big challenge I think for for the yeah. industry on that type of subject either which way I'm getting onto a hobby horse and that's not really what we're here for <laughs> we're, we're here to talk about um, eating disorders so so you were talking there and incredibly importantly about the um um, the difficulties and the, and the surprise that if an eating disorder is is um, mentioned by a client yeah. a, a customer um that sometimes these questions will be asked and um, you know right at the very beginning you're absolutely right that um suicide is the second biggest killer of people who suffer from anorexia um so that is why the insurers will ask those questions Um, if uh, an eating disorder, one of the more severe eating disorders, let's be honest here, um, comes
0: up. Yeah, I think it's quite important as well at this stage to say that uh, anybody who's listening who has or is living with um, an eating disorder like anorexia or bulimia, um, please don't, in a sense, feel like you're being singled out in terms of the mental health questions because the questions that do ask about things like being an inpatient or um, any kind of... um, uh, suicide attempts um, or um, any kind of self harm, they're asked in a sense of you know, as soon as anybody kind of really puts in any information about even mild anxiety or stress or depression, it kind of automatically becomes a a run through of that. Um, so it's it's not something that's going to be you know, r- r- that people aren't being put in a in a very, very narrow box to say, oh, you know, we're going to ask you all these questions. It's a case of, right, there's a mental health related condition here. Let's all... Um, let's all bring it together. And I have realised as well, and I, obviously I'll be um, very upfront about it, I've realised that I've made a, a huge mistake as I've been talking through, these, um, through this as well. I have said a couple of times, commit suicide, um, which is it's something I train people not to say, it is a huge no um, to refer to it in in that kind of a way. It's always, we we always focus on saying attempt suicide because um, to, to use the phrase, commit suicide, it's... Um, harkens back to the time when it was an illegal act and some kind of religious connotations um that come with it. So it is something that we um we don't use. So I'm, I'm very sorry for listeners for for saying that so far, but it just shows that we're not all, all perfect and um but recognize that I've done it wrong and uh and uh obviously very, very sorry for saying that way and I will make sure I don't for especially at least the rest of this episode.
1: Very interesting point, Catherine. Um, thank you for pointing that out because um I need to learn about that as well. So uh, you're not the only
0: one. So- it's a big, it, It's. I think, I don't know why, but I think a lot of us automatically say commit suicide. And it, it is something that you have to very specifically train yourself not to do. Mm-hmm. And obviously today I've just, uh, just for some reason, gone back to to the way that I used to phrase it. So, um, but... We, uh it's a, it's a good one to point out for everybody not to do. No, no,
1: thank you. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'll, 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 uh, I'm listening and learning, as I always do when we have these conversations.
0: As do I. Uh, in terms of things like arranging life insurance, critical illness covering, in protection potentially, and I will go on to a case study soon um, for everybody, um, what are what would, what would you be expecting for insurers to be able to offer terms-wise? Now, I, I know that we're saying this and, and there's probably a never-ending mixed because you say everything's so individual. But let's say um if we take an example maybe and say that we've had somebody who has had bulimia and um you know they've they had it when I don't know maybe five years ago and um, and now they're, they are, you know, it was the last symptoms and the last feelings of it were five years ago. And now they're wanting these insurances. Now, obviously, I, I appreciate you won't able to tell us specific pricing or specific no, sort no, of no. like percentages or anything like that, if there are to be any premium loadings. But what would you be kind of thinking that we'd be looking at terms wise?
1: Okay, um, I have to refer back um, to to the actual data that you gave me. There, yeah. can I assume that we have a um, a, a what would be considered an acceptable BMI? With this, with these yeah, so, with this so let's
0: assume this person is around, I don't know, let's say 26 BMI. They have bulimia, though they had bulimia. There's been no kind of um, mental health uh, situations in, in case, in terms of like being any kind of an inpatient, seeing a psychiatrist. Um, there's been no care under community mental health team. There's just been something that they have lived with. Um, that they have managed that they obviously did things like probably some talking therapies cognitive behavior therapy mm-hmm. and um, and it's just something that's due to that's well based upon what we see sometimes reactive to some work stress um, that, you know it became a bit of like a, a con- control mechanism for them a little bit but essentially <clears throat> so excuse me essentially the last five years have been fine
1: Okay, well, I, I I smile when you tell me that. Um, that I think I heard. By the way, <laughs> we are a long way across the Pennines up from each other, aren't we? Um,
0: <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I just started to um, I started to choke a little bit. So I think it's not like I was crying, starting to cry. But I'm just trying to take some water to <laughs> stop choking. Oh, okay, <laughs>
1: well, was, I will step in. Don't you worry. <laughs> um, I, I think you said a BMI of 26. Yes. Which, uh, which of course, as you know, in this in this this wonderful classification. That we uh, that we live in um 26 is actually is, is classed as overweight you know can you believe so with healthy weights are generally seen um uh, between 19 and 25. so let's say let's say and, and tw- uh, by the way a, a, a weight of 26 is absolutely fine from an underwriting perspective no no problems at all really what i was just referring back to is the um the way that clinicians term people with BMIs over the uh, over twenty five. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the case that you mentioned, going back to the question that you asked me, the direct question you asked me, I, from a life insurance perspective, I will be looking at standard rates. Okay. Sim- simple as that. Um, if somebody had anorexia in their teens, you mentioned the uh, the average mm. um, age range there for, for people who suffer from anorexia, um, and it was five years ago, and they had a decent BMI, and they've overcome all of those issues, then again, um, if they're completely okay now, I'll probably be looking at <clears throat> excuse me standard rates for life insurance. Yes. Critical illness um, would be a little bit more difficult for the anorexia because you'd want to make sure they had no complications from some of the um, Mm. problems that I mentioned earlier. Um, You know, particularly the heart. That heart isn't damaged in any way.
0: Um, putting, putting, I the, yeah, I was gonna sorry, stage, going to say at this stage. I was going to say at this stage, I wonder if it's quite good for people who aren't familiar with these contracts, just to sort of say that. Well, with critical illness cover, you I'm know, sorry. the no, it's, I think it's just um, good to you know, sort of pipe in and, and hopefully I'll, I'll mention as many as possible. You know, in terms of critical illness cover, obviously, as with anything, the insurers are trying to establish the risk of somebody making a claim. So obviously anything that can potentially enhance or heighten the, the chance of a risk, they do tend to, to look at more closely. And they might increase premiums to reflect that sometimes, or sometimes they do put exclusions on, but that's usually sort of like, I wouldn't necessarily say in, in this um, area. Um, but, you know, we're based on what you've said, obviously, heart attack is on there. I imagine stroke could potentially be linked into a certain level, um, major organ transplants, depending upon how strong the, the, the Simpsons had been at some stage. And I imagine there's there's quite a few others as well, but straight away we've got um in, in terms of critical illness cover the three main claimable areas are cancer, heart attack and stroke. So straight away two of the really key areas that the insurer might pay out on are kind of seen as maybe possibly being a bit more enhanced here. Is that is that right to say I, I, I couldn't
1: have told it better myself, Catherine. Okay. Hold oh, absolutely uh, true. I'd probably just caveat slightly by it probably wouldn't be a risk of a heart attack so much as a heart failure. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. But um, but apart from that, um, you're absolutely 100 percent right. No, no wonder you have this reputation of being one of the best. <laughs> what can I say? Thank
0: you. Sorry, sorry for jumping in. I just suddenly thought, oh, for people who don't know what these actually cover, you know, sort no, of, and. No. Uh, and uh, you know, obviously we're usually a good at least a good sixty conditions that are covered on these policies. But I think it's just really, you know, sort of key to say, you know, that the potential link to some of the really high claimed ones are actually, you know, that's what the insurer is, you know, because I think sometimes people are wondering, like, well, why why you, why, you know, why am I at such a risk? Because I'm fine now, I've I've recovered and and sometimes it is obviously as well as advisors, we have a very delicate conversation to explain obviously what you know as potentially being seen and it's hard because you're like look we're not saying this is you but in terms of data and what's happened before this is what it's shown because then you, you again it's, it's that really awkward kind of conversation of like we're not saying it's you but at the same point we're also yeah. kind of saying yes that you and are what? at a higher risk and you're and that's really hard yeah. really hard to manage
1: yeah no I, I completely agree um no no two ways well said well said um, in terms of income protection, then I'm afraid I'd have to go individual consideration on that one. That, yeah. that famous get out uh, phrase insu- used uh, by underwriters. Um, if I go back to
0: At least the mental health exclusion, I would imagine.
1: Well, that's the area that I would be. Um, I, I would be most concerned of if everything else all, all or the all, um the, the organ side if you want uh, multi yeah. you know, the, were, was okay i'd be looking at the um the mental illness side that's a possibility to to um to provide that yeah it's 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 yeah. certainly a um a, an option um I, I i if somebody's made a fantastic recovery there's always going to be a chance so statistically, there is always a chance of reoccurrence. That's one of the challenges, obviously. So, an exclusion might be the best way to to deal with it. Not that I'm, I'm personally an exclusion fan, but it is better than not giving any cover. It's certainly better than not giving any cover at all. Yeah. Certainly on a product like income protection. Um, please, please jump in about income protection and what it is. and yeah. um, It's such an important product and part of the protection armory that um, you know. Oh, yeah. Hiding, it, it, getting cover even with an exclusion is in my opinion it's worth certainly worth getting sorry Catherine did you want to say something about yeah. income protection
0: then? yeah I will do and then I'll take us on to a case studies we're coming towards an end so so yeah in terms of the income protection so it's it's quite difficult because you know I speak to a lot of people with mental health conditions and they'll you know income protection can be offered with mental health exclusion and there's a mix of responses and you know you will get some people who say well I don't want the policy if it's a mental health exclusion because I have mental health and it might well cause me to not work which is completely understandable that people think yep. that way but essentially some it sounds awful but in some ways it's trying to take it sometimes to a completely different condition to explain it to people and so I say well look if somebody you know I, I often go to Parkinson's because I always think Parkinson's is my dad is a, with his Parkinson's but sure. I like so say right so if somebody had Parkinson's and they wanted insurance to cover them for claims relating to Parkinson's would you think that that would be available and i think sometimes changing it that way can sometimes i mean obviously again there'll be some people who still think it should be but i think a lot of people if you if you change the scenario can understand it a bit more and yeah. then i have other people you know it's probably about half and half in terms of what people feel like the other half of people are just like well I've, i have mental health it's never stopped me working that's fine um obviously when i say fine i mean it's I, you know they're okay to it's accept the terms it's, yeah, it's acceptable, acceptable to them and yeah. um, yeah. <clears throat> some insurers will also reduce the premium if mental health is excluded so it is always worth trying to to keep an eye out for those because obviously they are very um, aware of the fact that it, you know it is it is a in a sense a big um, claim exclusion on there but ultimately you know Again, going to the Parkinson's sample, you know, you could have the income protection in place, and yes, mental health could be excluded. But then, if for some reason you are diagnosed with Parkinson's, and, and I'm not saying that people with Parkinson's automatically don't work, but it is a progressive neurological condition, so at some stage, it's it's likely to affect someone's ability to work. Somebody, you know, you might have a stroke, you might have a heart attack, you know, and again, people in those situations can sometimes get back to work quite quickly. But there are occasions where people do have a diagnosis where it is very significant and getting back to work is very hard. And and with income protection, it's not always just saying along the lines of right, well, you can never work again and this will always pay out, which which these policies will do, you know, depending upon how they're set up. But it's also what's um an incredible thing, I think, which is the phased um claims as well. So it could well be that somebody, let just use an example there, somebody's had a stroke, they need to take um you know, a good six to 12 months off work to recover, um, which is, you know, completely um quite i think quite a potential normal time period on average um, and at the end of that they want to try get back into work but there's also a bit of worry of like well at the moment i'm living off the income protection policy but if i go back to work i'm gonna you know it could be a bit too intense and then what's going to happen to this well with most insurers what they will do is they will help you to do a, a sense of phased return so if you're normal working week i'm going to do some really basic maths here so just to not to confuse myself but you know if someone's generally working 40 hours a week and it's like well maybe you can go back for 10 hours a week at a time well then your employer pays for that 10 hours but then the income protection policy carries on topping you up for however long it needs to for you to then be able to well next time you get to 20 hours so then it, the employer pays the 20 hours and then the policy will still top you up as you know to a certain amount and it'll make sure that you're not you know that there's not they're not going to Punish people for trying to get back to work. It's all about trying to do the best for the person, trying to help people stay active. Because ultimately, as well, if you can get back to work, it's incredibly important for you in terms of um, emotional and mental well being and physical well being as well, if you are able to actually get out and about moving and doing things. Um, So I think that's what I would say in terms of the income protection, uh, Matt, is that um, there are far more situations and very, you know, very very serious situations where income protection can really play a huge part in a person's life and also the knock on as well to their families as well in terms of um people maybe needing to get more support in terms of childcare and um, partners maybe having to give up work to be able to act as a carer for a certain period of time and um, but obviously, this all comes into somebody actually seeking some financial advice. And uh, and especially with income protection, I know with all of these policies, people, most of the policies we talk about, so life life and critical illness, income protection, people can arrange it on their own. But with income protection, there's so many aspects to it that can be tweaked or built in certain ways. And, um, and I think it's really um, important to try and seek advice. And I have been speaking to somebody recently who is somebody and... Um, and she's been putting insurances in place to really support her children and um, her, her adult children. She's been wanting to get them insurances to, to look after them because I think they yeah, kind of think, well, oh, do I need this? And she's been doing it um, on their behalf. And and now she's, she's come to me. She's not one of my clients, but she's come to me for some advice. And, and unfortunately, she has chosen policies that, Aren't necessarily the strongest of these versions that are out there, um, and you know it's it's a, a very sad situation because one of the children is now quite ill and and also young. Um,
1: oh but
0: I know it's uh, it's not great. But um, I've only got a couple of minutes, so I'm going to run through the next bits if that's okay with you, Matt. No, I just uh, I was
1: going to say one sentence. Sorry, I just I think yeah. everything you just said there just shows you how important income protection is as, yeah. as part of your protection overall protection portfolio end of really Absolutely. it's a great policy to get by
0: everything Just, you know. yeah no everything whenever I train people and I do things um and I when I'm saying training people it's a protection advisors market advisors wealth advisors I'm always very very big on income protection and explaining it because my point of view is you can build the best financial packages in the world you can have the yeah. best job and everything you can be so financially secure but all you need is to fall ill and it all crumbles, and it's income protection that's the thing that's there to stop it crumbling. Yeah, agree. Um, so a bit of a case study before we go so I've got a man in his early 50s came to us and he was needing some insurances just generally for a little bit of a mortgage that was on and a little bit in terms of family protection and some protection for himself and he'd had some bulimia when he was in his early 30s so about 20 years ago um, but in the last five years he had had some stress and he'd had some increased blood pressure and chest pain following that stress so that kind of adds into what we were saying Matt, about you know in terms of an underwriter maybe thinking well this was 20 years ago but we've got a little bit of a mental health connection here it was five years ago but it is showing a bit of a recurrence we've got a bit of you know sort of like chest pains and things like that is there maybe something going on that's as a result of what happened um, that 20 years ago and still had quite a low bmi so it was just under 20 so within the, the range of bmis you know still fine but just just bordering into a lower range yeah um but what was brilliant is that we were able to get him insurances um both of them at normal terms so to just explain the pricing um so for life insurance we'd gotten him it was twenty five thousand pounds worth of cover over 36 years and that was um just under 15 pounds per month and then for the life and critical illness cover we also did another twenty five thousand, but we did that over the 21 years to match the specific needs and that came close to 45 pounds per month and um, what I like in some ways about that in terms of the premiums and obviously to say they're both normal terms there's no exclusions is the fact that that shows often what I say to people so it's about 15 pounds for life insurance 45 pounds for the life and critical illness cover and obviously there was a bigger gap in the term but I always say to people generally if you want critical illness cover whatever the life insurance is we're going to be multiplying it between three to five and times to get the amount that you'll eventually pay for the critical illness cover so I think that's a a quite nice example of that yeah absolutely So thank you, everybody, for listening. And thank you, as always, for your insights, Matt. Uh, Next time, I have Roy McLaughlin back with me and for more industry insights. And we will be joined by Kevin Carr. And he's going to be giving us his thoughts on public relations, why we do and don't see positive stories in the press, and some tips if you're wanting to stand out at some awards. If you'd like a reminder of the next episode, please do drop me a message on social media or visit the website practical-protection.co.uk. And don't forget that if you've listened to this as part of your work, you can claim a cpd certificate on the website too thanks to our sponsors octo members thank you matt have a lovely rest of the day
1: thank you very much and you too and thanks for listening everyone as well
0: thank you